What would cause a king, the first king of Israel, to lose the kingdom in a single day? What caused God to remove his first appointed king from reigning over his people? It was not lack of success in battle. King Saul lost the kingdom not because he was overtaken by enemies. Quite the opposite. Saul lost the kingdom after winning against an enemy that he fought against hard. Saul lost the kingdom after a big military success. So I'd like to turn our attention this morning to the theme of being successful and yet losing the kingdom. Would you open God's word to the book of First Samuel? Chapter 15. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 35. And I pray as we turn our way there, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be just as powerful as this wind is. I hope that the Lord will do His work among us this morning. Here's God's word. Here's God's word for our hearts. If you have a Bible... Follow along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the host of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the day when they came out out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king. 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. It was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and he tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. 
Agak said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agak to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, on this windy morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts through the proclamation of your word. I pray for clarity. I pray for focus. And Father, I pray that you would do that in our hearts, in my own heart, and in our hearts as hearers of the word. Father, we pray that you would accomplish in us what you have intended to accomplish through this passage in 1 Samuel 15. We pray all this, Father, for your glory and for the spread of your kingdom in our hearts and in our, in our world. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 15 is one of the darkest chapters of this book of 1 Samuel. Uh, some actually call it the darkest chapter um, in, uh, the, among the, the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, the story of King Saul takes a tragic turn. So tragic that we get one of the pictures of God's heart about what has happened to Saul. It's not because of pestilence. It's not because uh, of some sort of a pandemic hitting the land that caused this tragedy. It's not because of losing battles. It's not because of losing money. It turns tragic because Saul's victory in battle against the enemy proved to be a, an insufficient measure of success. What proved to be tragic for Saul was success without obedience to the word of God. My prayer is that the Lord would help us see the importance and the priority that God's people should place on listening to God's word and acting on it faithfully and fully. Failing here would make any of our successes, any of our accomplishments, and even any of our worship to be ultimately worthless, pointless. As we look at this story, there's five significant moves in the narrative. And these five moves uh, become five points uh, for the message this morning. Uh, I'll list these points, but don't worry about writing them down at this point. You'll have a chance to do so as we go through them. God is faithful to fulfill his judgment decrees. God is faithful to fulfill his judgment decrees. Saul wins in battle, but fails to obey the Lord. Three, the Lord gives over or grieves over Saul's disobedience. Four, Samuel confronts Saul's disobedience. 
And five, Saul's confession is superficial. Let's look at these. As this story unfolds for us, the tragic events that turned or made Saul's successful military campaign to prove to be a big loss of his kingdom. God is faithful to fulfill his judgment decrees. This is point number one in the story. Uh, God had a special mission for King Saul. So he sent Samuel to the king and uh, told him the instruction about the special mission. And we see the instruction in verses 2 and 3. God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites. So far, uh, the battles Saul had taken in this book have all been battles of defending against enemies that initiated attacking the Israelites. This battle is a little different. This battle, God initiates. God sends Saul on a mission to go in this battle against the Amalekites. And not only is God initiating the battle and sending Saul on it, but gives him some special instructions. And those instructions meant utterly destroy the Amalekites. This is an unusual mission. This mission uh, requested by God may puzzle us. Why would God give such a command? And specifically, why would God ask even for the destruction of, of women and children, infants, animals, and all that they had? Is this fair? Is this the God of the Bible? We might ask. God tells Saul why he decrees such a total destruction of the Amalekites. Uh, and uh, we see the instruction in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Well, this gives us a clue. God's special mission to Saul had reasons. It was not without foundation. The Amalekites were the first people to attack the Israelites after they escaped from the bondage in Egypt. After they had crossed the Red Sea, before they ever got to Mount Sinai, before the Lord ever gave them the Ten Commandments, the Amalekites were the first ones to attack the people of God. And we read of their attack in Exodus chapter 17. And here's what the Lord decreed at the end of that battle about the Amalekites. Exodus 17 verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Even before giving the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai, God decreed His judgment of utter destruction against the Amalekites because of how they treated God's redeemed people. Exodus 17 is not the only passage that refers to the Amalekites and their total destruction. In the book of Numbers, the prophet Balaam, remember Balaam? The prophet Balaam utters this prophecy against the Amalekites. Numbers 27, I'm sorry, Numbers 24. Uh, verse 20. Then he looked on Amalek and took up this discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter 
destruction. Do you hear God's decree against Amalek as utter destruction? And it doesn't stop there. Here's a third reference. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verses 17 and 18, Moses says to the second generation of the Israelites before they enter the promised land, Moses says to them, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Who were those who were lagging behind Israel? when they came out of Egypt. Amalek did not attack the strong. Amalek did not attack the army of Israel. They attacked those who were going slowest on their journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. That meant the vulnerable ones, the elderly, the young ones, the parents with infants, the ones who were carrying on the animals and they were just going a little slower. And because of that, the Lord decreed that a future time will come when the Lord will blot out the memory of Amalek from the earth. Verse 19, in Deuteronomy 25, Moses tells the Israelites that after they settle in, they will carry out God's vengeance against the Amalekites. Here's verse 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Three times in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, God made this decree against Amalek. And now in chapter 15, God says it's time to execute the judgment I have uttered against Amalek. This old issued judgment decree is now to be fulfilled. It's God's vengeance against those who have opposed his, pe his people. It's God's faithfulness to carry out what he promised he would do against the Amalekites. And now that Saul has been installed as king, now that he had a few battles under his uh, under his belt, the time came for the Lord to remember the promise of his vengeance. So the Lord entrusts Saul with a mission to carry out this long-promised vengeance. That's why this mission is special and is specifically asked for the total destruction of the Amalekites and all that they had so that not even a memory of them, not even a memory of a thing they owned would be left behind. Oh, friends, this special mission God entrusted to Saul has some important applications for us, teaching us about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to carry out His Word, both His promises and His judgments. The Lord promised the Israelites divine vengeance against the Amalekites, and the Lord followed through with a promise. God will vindicate His people and their unjust suffering. We can leave our vengeance to the Lord, dear friends. We don't have to take vengeance in our own hands. 
on our own timing. But we can trust that the Lord in His own timing, in His own way, can carry out His divine vengeance. Oh friends, it may be hard for us to hear the decree of utter destruction of the Amalekites. Yet their destruction is a reminder that God takes sin seriously. And the Bible warns us of even a greater judgment, the eternal destruction in hell of all those who remain unreconciled to God. God tells us in His Word that the wages of sin is death. God will judge sin. He either judges sin in us or He judges sin in Christ. So that those who would place their trust in Christ will no longer face a judgment of eternal damnation because of their sin. Outside of Christ, our eternal future is eternal damnation. Take warning to heart. Flee now to Christ before God will fulfill all His promises and all His judgments. God is faithful to fulfill His judgment decrees. In the case of the Amalekites, the timeline from Exodus 17 to 1 Samuel 15 was several centuries. That the delay of judgment did not mean that God forgot or that God gave it a pass. Friends, the God of the Bible is faithful to carry out His judgment decrees. After hearing the instructions of the Lord, Saul goes to battle against the Amalekites. And this points us to the second major turn in the story. Point number two, Saul succeeds in battle, but disobeys the Lord. Saul succeeds in battle, but disobeys the Lord. We see this in verses 4 through 9. The author details for us how Saul prepared his army and made sure that the Amalekites were alone so he could destroy the Amalekites. Saul asks another group, the Kenites, to evacuate so they would not be caught up in the destruction of the Amalekites. Uh, the impression we get from Saul here is that he's really willing to follow through on utter destruction of the Amalekites. But when the day of battle comes, we read that Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. That was a long distance if we looked at the map. The point of this geographical description is to show us how widespread and big Saul's victory was. He really succeeded in this battle. All is going well with the battle until we get to verse 9 and we encounter the word but. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Did Saul carry out the total destruction of all the Amalekites and all that they had, such that nothing remained behind them, so that their memory would be totally blotted out? The answer is no, he didn't. Here's a king who accomplished a great success in battle. 
but he disobeyed the Lord. He picks and chooses what is worthy of destruction. And in doing so, Saul takes a place of God in determining what's worth keeping and what's worth destroying. When God already determined that all of it was worth destroying. Saul is a king who knows how to be successful, but does not know how to listen to the word of God. Or he doesn't want to. Saul knows how to command his army to win battles. But he does not know how to lead his armies to listen to the Lord and to obey the word of the Lord. Friends, let's learn from what Saul did here. And be cautious and not fool ourselves thinking that success is all that matters. Or thinking that making accomplishments in this life is somehow more important than listening attentively to the word of the Lord. Don't let the craving for success tune out the desire for obedience to the word of God. Saul here thought that he could defeat the Amalekites and also keep the best of what they had. Trying to do the best of both worlds. One of the lures we can fall into as believers is thinking that we can do part of what God says and keep part of what we crave. Have you ever been in those moments, in those situations where you want to try to keep both worlds together? Friends, it doesn't work. No level of success can compensate for our failure to listen to God. After Saul's success proves to fall short of obeying the Lord, notice a third move in the story. This leads us to point number three. The Lord grieves over Saul's disobedience. The Lord grieves over Saul's disobedience. We see this in verse 10, 11, and then we'll see it again in verse 35. In verse 10, 11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. The notion of God regretting to make Saul king reappears also in verse 35, the, the last verse of this chapter. It says, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. When we uh, interpret narratives, stories like this, repetition is one of the tools that narratives employ to show emphasis. And what we get here is as soon as Saul disobeys, as soon as Saul's successful disobedience, we might call it, or disobedient success, as soon as that takes place, we get a glimpse immediately into God's heart. And the picture and the window of God's heart brackets the, follow, the rest of this chapter. It's as if the narrator wants to tell us the most important thing you as a hearer need to take from unfolding this story is what Saul's disobedience does to God's heart. That is 
regret. Now we must understand what regret means here because regret, as we use that word, can mean a host of things. When God says, I regret that I made Saul king, we should not interpret this as though God did not know what Saul would do. As if God is surprised. As if God didn't know. Nor should we take God's regret as a confession that God made a mistake in choosing Saul. Uh, we as humans can, can use the word regret in either of those two ways. But there's another way the meaning of the word regret can have. And the Hebrew word for regret can also be translated as suffering grief. And this is the meaning used here. Regret here shows God's pain and grief over Saul's disobedience. It's a way of saying, I am deeply grieved at Saul's disobedience. By the way, a similar verb is used in Genesis when God saw the wickedness of mankind before the flood. The Lord said in Genesis 6, 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's a picture that we get here as well. That Saul's disobedience grieved God's heart. Friends, sin grieves God's heart. Our disobedience grieves God's heart. So when, while we try to, to go on ventures of, of pursuing success or accomplishments or just doing our own thing, thinking that it pleases us, thinking that it brings us pleasure and delight, we must remember that it grieves God's heart. While God is not surprised by our sin, His heart is nevertheless deeply affected by it, moving the Lord's affection deep grief but sin not only produces God grief it also brings consequences and the consequences are decreed in the confrontation that Samuel gives to Saul which leads us to the fourth major point in the story the confrontation of Saul's disobedience the confrontation of Saul's disobedience after God revealed to Samuel what Saul did Samuel went the next morning to confront Saul of his disobedience. And we see this in verses 12 through 23. This is one of the longer parts of the five moves in the story. It's the longest, dear friends, because sometimes it takes a long time to expose disobedience, as it will prove to be the case in Saul's situation. As Saul meets Samuel... And as Samuel exposes Saul, we notice how Saul sought to hide his disobedience. There's two paths Saul takes to hide his disobedience. And when Samuel hears it, he'll have none of it. He exposes it. And we can learn from this. Here's the first way Saul uh, tries to hide his disobedience. By pretense. Obedience. By pretense obedience. When Samuel meets Saul, notice how Saul greets Samuel. Without Samuel ever saying a word. Here's what Saul says to Samuel. Verse 13. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Wow, how presumptuous. 
How presumptuous of, of Saul to start off. It's amazing that at this point, Saul tries to hide his disobedience under the robe of, I've done what the Lord commanded me. Sometimes, dear friends, we want to have the reputation of being obedient to the Lord, but not actually have the heart that is obedient to the Lord. We may try to convince ourselves and others that we are obedient to the Lord, when in reality, we are more interested in the reputation of obedience than in actual obedience. Here, Saul starts off with his reputation of being obedient. Another path he takes, besides pretense obedience, is partial obedience. And this is the one that needs more exposure. When Samuel asks about the, saw, the, the sound and the voice of the animals that he heard, Saul blames that the people spared the best animals for worship and that they destroyed everything else. This is in verse 15. In other words, Saul says, well, uh, I... Yeah, I did obey partially, and the rest um, we kept so that we could worship the Lord, so we could have more money in the treasury. We could have more animals in, uh, in, in our stock, in our inventory, so we could, we could have greater worship. Saul makes another false assumption here. He assumes that partial obedience counts as full obedience. Have you ever done that? Assuming that partial obedience counts as full obedience. When Samuel asked Saul why he disobeyed the word of the Lord and why he rushed on the plunder of the Amalekites, notice Saul's answer, verse 20. But I did obey the Lord. Saul assumes that partial obedience is full obedience. But Samuel makes clear here that partial obedience is rebellion. Samuel will have none of the explanations that Saul brings up. Saul assumed that sparing the best animals for sacrifices to the Lord would excuse his disobedience, but it didn't. As it turns out, Samuel engages in a correction of Saul's theology. Saul engages in a correction of Saul's understanding of what God delights in. And notice how, Saul, how Samuel corrects Saul's theology about three things. About the weightiness of obedience, about the weightiness of rebellion, and about the weightiness of presumption. We see this correction in verses 22 and 23. Consider the weightiness of obedience. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In the first and last description of God's heart concerning Saul's sin revealed God's deep grief. Here Samuel tells us what brings God great delight. This is not a coincidence. The heart of Samuel's confrontation of Saul's theology is the very opposite of what Saul caused the heart of the Lord. The delight, the great delight that God takes in is not sacrifices of animals, but the obedience of His people. 
the attentiveness of his people to his word, the posture of being willing to listen and to respond to God on his terms fully. Even though sacrifices were part of the worship of God in the Old Testament, Samuel makes clear here that worship without obedience is meaningless. Service to God without paying attention to His Word and doing what He says misses the point of what brings God delight. I wonder, dear friends, if there are ways in which we today too are tempted to separate worship and service to God from obedience to God's Word. What are the things that you are tempted to prioritize over obedience to the Word of God? Or that you would use as a substitute to the obedience to the Word of God? Are you seeking to serve God in some way as a substitute for obeying Him? Imagine, for example, if a businessman would rationalize acting unethically in his business practices by saying that he could give a lot more money to the church if he kept doing the unethical practice he does. Would God be more delighted in his generosity than in his obedience to the word of God to act with integrity? No. Even though being generous towards God with our resources is a godly thing, that generosity cannot cover up for our disobedience to the word of God. Samuel makes clear here the priority and the weightiness of obedience, of having a heart attentive to what God says and willing to respond to Him with an obedient faith. Well, friends, obedience is not the opposite of faith. Obedience is a visible manifestation of the faith. When people listen to the Word of God and act on it, they show they actually believe God, that they fear God more than others. And this is not just an Old Testament principle. It's also a New, Te New Testament teaching as well. Jesus said in John 15, 14, 15, he, he told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our trust in God and our love for God is manifested through our willingness to listen to God as an, an act on what he says. Saul not only misunderstood the weight of obedience, he also misunderstood the weight of rebellion and of presumption. And this is what Samuel goes on correcting in verse 23. He says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. We may know what rebellion is. It's willful disobedience. Knowing what is right and yet choosing to act against it. But I wonder if we understand the weight of rebellion and presumption. Samuel uh, compares it with divination. What is divination? Divination was the act of seeking to find out the future by illegitimate spiritual means, such as consulting the dead. And uh, such practices were to be utterly rejected at all costs. And the Old Testament makes that very clear. 
Samuel is essentially saying the path of rebellion should be rejected at all costs. The last item Samuel brings up and corrects is presumption. What is presumption? It's the act of assuming that something is true when in reality we don't have enough evidence or we might be wrong about that reality. Both rebellion and presumption have one common factor. They assume that our assessment and evaluation of what is right or wrong is better than what God reveals as right or wrong. Acting in rebellion or in presumption are serious offenses against the Lord. So Saul chose to take obedience to the word of God lightly, and he chose to presume that his rebellion was not a big deal, but that it was excused by the ultimate explanation that the Lord would get more rams to be sacrificed for him. How presumptuous of Saul. His presumption led to his rebellion. Saul chose to act against the word of the Lord. And therefore, in verse 23, Samuel concludes the correction of Saul's theology with declaring the consequences. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Well, friends, this message is repeated in the story three times. In verse 23, then it's repeated in verse 26, and finally, with a decisive blow and with an immediate execution, it's repeated again in verse 28. It's as if Saul doesn't get it. It's as if Saul will not take no for an answer. And when Samuel tries to leave from his presence, Saul grabs his, his robe, thinking that he can stop Samuel. Friends, I wonder how lightly we might consider obedience or the hard posture of being a, a listener of the Word of God and how lightly we might consider rebellion and presumption in our own lives. Taking these lightly, taking obedience lightly, taking rebellion lightly, taking presumption lightly will have devastating effects for us. It certainly had devastating effects for Saul. And this leads us to point number five, the final move in the story, Saul's confession of sin. Saul's confession of sin proves superficial. As soon as Saul realizes that all his excuses were not going to make it with Samuel, as soon as Saul realized that all his excuses were not able to meet and match the correct theology of who God is, Saul confesses his sin. We see that in verses 24 to 31. Twice he confesses his sin. He even tells us why he disobeyed the Lord in verse 24. He feared people. And because he feared people, who did he obey? He obeyed them. We always obey what we ultimately fear. We always obey what we ultimately fear. Now all this sounds right and good and hopeful hearing it from Saul. 
He begins confessing, acknowledging his sin. He even uh, gets into the underlying heart issues, why he acted sinfully. This sounds hopeful. Until we keep reading the rest of the confession. Saul's confession has three signs that show that his confession of sin was a mere facade and superficial. First, he wants to keep pretending that nothing has changed. He wants to go on with the public worship of God instead of stopping to actually deal with his sin. Did you notice that as soon as he confesses his sin and asks Samuel to forgive his sin, Samuel, uh, Saul wants to go on and, and go on with the public worship of God and invite Samuel to go with him publicly and to pretend like nothing happened between them, that nothing happened with Saul and the kingship. Second, he not only pretends that nothing has changed, Saul cares more about how his people will perceive him. Look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me so I may bow before the Lord your God. What is Saul more interested in? He's more interested about his honor before people than he's interested about his guilt before God. And, and by the way, do you remember how the day started for Saul? I... I skipped over that detail intentionally. Remember how this day started for Saul? Before we, we got to the passage or the moment when Saul meets Samuel at Gilgal, we were told what Sa Saul did before getting to Gilgal that morning. It's in verse 12. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Saul set up a monument for himself. This is, before, this is after the big battle, the big successful battle. Saul wants to put up a monument in his honor. The NIV actually translates verse 12 this way. Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Before Saul goes down to worship the Lord at Gilgal, he first makes sure that there is a memory of his honor, honoring him. The, moment, the monument Saul set up was not to honor the Lord, but for his own honor. After such a victorious battle, Saul wants to establish the memory of his honor in the land. And now that same day, at the end of the day, when Saul heard of God's decree of taking the kingdom away from Saul, all Saul cares about is his honor before his people. He doesn't get it, doesn't it? Saul craves to establish and maintain his honor above dealing with his guilt before God. And this is a clue of his superficial confession. Yes, he got to the bottom of his heart what caused him to, to sin against the Lord, the fear of people. But that confession did not change Saul's craving to hold on to the honor of his name before the people. 
And when Samuel finally agrees to go with Saul, we find out that Samuel, that Saul, did not act on killing Agag. Saul goes to worship before the Lord, bows down before the Lord, and he stops there. What about Agag, who was left alive? It's not Saul who calls for Agag to be brought up, but Samuel is the one who calls for him. And it's Samuel who executed God's punishment against Agag. Saul was more interested to keep the public appearance unstained instead of correcting the evil that he committed. Each of these three signs describe superficial confessions. Confessing, but wanting things to be the same. Confessing, but caring more about our honor before people. Confessing, but not making right what was wrong. You know, Saul was victorious against the Amalekites, but Saul failed to take Agag out. Agag will appear again, or a descendant of Agag will appear again on the pages of the Old Testament. Remember Haman in the story of Esther? He's described as Haman the Agagite, the descendant of Agag. When we fail to carry out the word of the Lord in full obedience, the descendants of, of those unfailings or of those failings to obey, of those of lack of obediences, they keep lingering on. Saul is a king who will keep worshiping God, but only for the appearance to maintain his honor before others. That day Saul lost his kingship over God's people. That day he lost the right to be the lawful and legitimate king over God's people. It was because King Saul took the path of not listening to the word of the Lord and not obeying his instructions. So what was it that caused God to remove king, the kingship from Saul in a single day? It was his hard posture of disobedience to God, of pretense obedience, of partial obedience, which end up really on God's scale being full disobedience, full rebellion, full presumption. Friends, the failure of Saul sets a stage for another king who would come centuries later, King Jesus. The king God promised to send to come to earth to live in full obedience to the Father. Philippians 2, verse 8, the passage that we began the service with this morning, reminds us about Jesus and describes him in the following way. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus went to the cross to die not merely because he loved us, but because he was obedient to the Father, obedient even to the point of death. Not the death of others, but his own death. Friends, the great news of the gospel calls us to put our gaze on Christ. Through his obedience to the Father, Jesus endured the cross so that those of us who have disobeyed God and rebelled against him could be forgiven of our sin and trust in Christ and be brought back into the kingdom of God. If you have never trusted in Christ, 
I encourage you today to do so. The result of trusting in Christ is that such a faith in Him produces in us to obey, a desire to obey Him out of love for Him. If Saul is the man who succeeded and yet lost the kingdom, Jesus is the king who gave his life, who lost it, to ga gain access for us to God's kingdom. We become citizens of that kingdom as we trust in Christ, as we put our reliance on him and follow him and obey him. Such obedience is not legalism. Such obedience means we believe the word of the Lord and take it to heart. When Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Oh, friends, I fear for churches who may go on wanting to have converts to Christianity, but fail to teach converts all that Jesus has taught us, fail to, to lead people in obeying the word of the Lord. I pray that we would be a people who would be characterized not merely by an outward verbal confession and, and acknowledgement that we are followers of Christ, but that we would be a people who through our life prove that we are listening to the word of the Lord and acting on it out of our faith. As one of the German theologians once said, he who believes obeys. I pray that we would be a people who would listen to the word of the Lord, not as the reason for getting into the kingdom of God, but as a manifestation that the Lord is truly king over our hearts, that we fear him more than anything else, and that we actually believe that what he says will come true and therefore we want to act on it. The story of Saul's military success but spiritual failure should wake, up, should wake us up. Success in our accomplishments, even in our worship, even in our service of God, without obedience to God is worthless. I wonder if you and I share God's heart about the priority of a faithful obedience and an obedient faith. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that our hearts have often been lured by excuses to live in a way that hides our disobedience. Finding reasons why we can go on presuming upon your grace, presuming that our evaluation of ourselves is ultimately the, the one that matters the most. Father, thank you for reminding us in the story of King Saul that the evaluation that matters the most is yours. Thank you for reminding us and challenging us to consider the futility of, of, an of a disobedient worship, of a service that lacks the attentive listening of your word. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts transform our inner beings to have a desire to listen to you and follow through because we love you, because we believe your word, because we fear you, because we honor you 
more than we honor ourselves or anyone else. Make us a people who would be a faithful witness to your power and to your kingdom. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.